You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Zach Hutton-Stahl, expert in raising capital, multifamily expert, CEO of Raise48 Equity out of Phoenix, Arizona. Help me to uh, welcome our guest. How are you, Zach? Hey, Adam. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Look forward to providing some value for your listeners here today. So thank you. For sure. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, being with us today and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. So I would like to start uh, with Zach, the marketer, and what was the beginning for you on multifamily? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, quick story, quick background on me, Adam. So I was born and raised here in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, lived here my entire life. Um, I wanted to be like a sports reporter. So I, I got a journalism degree and I was a live news anchor sports reporter for Arizona PBS, hosted a show on Fox Sports Network, Arizona. Um, and, and, and that was cool at first, Adam. And then I quickly realized you can't make any money in journalism. <laughs> and I had, I had a bunch of student debt, you know, I was paying for school myself, taking out loans and my parents are kind of lower income, um, and so I was like, man, I need to make money. I don't want to do this anymore. And so I actually left journalism and I went into healthcare marketing simply to try to make more money to pay off my debt. And so I, I went into hospice sales of all things, working for a hospice organization. So I was a marketer, then I became a director of marketing, and then I became president and co-owner of a large hospice organization here in Phoenix. We had about 110 employees, got my MBA and, you know, was fortunate to, to do really well in healthcare, um, but just got burnt out of that industry. And so you know, I was fortunate to be making, you know, 200K plus a year, have equity in this company. I paid off all my school debt. I bought a house, you know, when I was 23. So by the time I was like 22, 23, I was making more money than both my parents combined, you know? And so I was fortunate to kind of develop that yeah. financial stability, but I ultimately just got burnt out and I didn't want to do that. That was never my true goal. So mm-hmm. January, 2018, I resigned and I sold my equity in that company and, and, I, and I lived off of savings for well over a year. I, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that I didn't want to do that. And then I wanted to create passive income and gain control back of my time somehow through real estate. And I knew nothing about multifamily. I knew nothing about syndication. I didn't know anybody in the industry. Um, I didn't even, and no family in the industry, no, no rich uncle or anything like that. Um, but I basically just kind of grinded it out for over a year, just burning through cash, making no money. I first started listening to podcasts like yours, Adam, reading books, going to conferences, um, showing up to, to meetups and just kind of grinding it out. And finally, 14 months later, you know, I, I met a couple of my business partners and a few of us, we, we bought our first property together. It was a 36 unit, three and a half million dollar deal here in central Phoenix. It was just the three of us and a couple other people. So we had no passive investors. We really wanted to learn how to, you know, execute a value add plan with our, with our own money. So we all just put in big chunks of our own money. And that first deal gave us a lot of experience and momentum to then go forward and start syndicating these deals and raising money from passive investors. And so since then, we've acquired 34 different properties all here in the Phoenix Metro worth over $1.2 billion, over 5,700 units. Um, Every single deal we've ever acquired has drastically exceeded projections. We've never missed an investor distribution. We do monthly investor distributions every month, every investor. Mm -hmm. And since we started, Adam, um, we've, we've gone full cycle, successfully executed the business plan and sold 10 of these assets already. We've already sold 10 of them. They've all been home runs for our investors. 
Um, and so we've gone full cycle on those. We're, we're selling one more here in a couple of weeks and we're buying another one here in about four weeks. So that's kind of the, the quick You're summary. killing it. You're really killing yeah. it. No, we've been, we've been fortunate to really kind of stay focused. And, and our biggest thing is building out infrastructure, right? So we're completely vertically integrated with our own property management company that we started, Rise 48 Communities. Hmm. Uh, we manage all of our own assets. We have over 100 plus full-time employees on full benefits. And so all of the on-site leasing, maintenance, managers, all of our staff, we have a full accounting team, investor relations, transactions. And so, you know, the, the good thing is, was in the, in the early years, my two partners and I, Bikron, Robert, and myself, we were personally doing every little minutia detail you can imagine, right? As part of the business. So we learned every little nook and cranny of, the, of every department of this business, which allowed us to, once we started scaling, hiring people and training them how to do every little detail so we can start to build an infrastructure. So that's kind of, you know, what, what we've done. I think my, my first question, when you said you use your own money, you build a team from scratch. And one of the things always is, is lending uh, guidelines. So one of the things that you have to qualify for the whole loan or guarantee the whole loan, did you start to have this kind of mentality that you need partners with you? You don't want to do everything by yourself or you started to do everything by yourself? Yeah, no, great, great question, Adam. Yeah, you're exactly right. So when you're signing on these commercial loans, you know, you, you have to meet net worth and liquidity requirements. Yeah. Okay. And so I did not have net worth and liquidity. You know, my net worth was like a few hundred K. It was the cash I had. I, yeah. I had like a hundred K of cash that I had relentlessly saved and got a pop from selling the equity in that company. And so I partnered with my, my business partner, Robert, you know, he had, he had higher net worth, higher liquidity mm. to qualify for the loan. Okay. And so my, my, my role initially was kind of, and, and I kind of sought Robert out, you know, I, I met him at a conference in Dallas. And so first, you know, I found him and helped us qualify for that first deal. So we could sign along. It was him and I signing on the loan. And then I found Bikron and Bikron is our, is now our CFO. I mean, Bikron is very elite at financial analysis. So he has an economics degree, CPA, worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers for a number of years. So very good with financial analysis, underwriting. And so, you know, through this period, I was able to kind of find my two partners, to really solve a lot of the issues because you know you, you can't do it all on your own right and there's so much that goes into it and so the biggest challenge and what i was able to do is identify okay what am i good at and what am i passionate about and what are my weaknesses and i need to find business partners hmm. whose strengths are my weaknesses so we can find that complementary skill set to, to kind of put it all together and so that's what we were able to do and it, and it happened it didn't happen overnight it, this took you know a year and a half almost just to find these guys um and, and i had quote unquote dated several other business partners prior to that, right? Mm -hmm. you, you meet people at conferences, you say, do you want to work together? It doesn't work out for one reason or another. And so, yeah, so basically, you know, he kind of solved that, you know, now, you know, um, we can meet all the requirements for net worth and liquidity because we've been fortunate to kind of scale. But as far as the, as the business, you know, we, we basically, um, you know, we take an acquisition fee on the front end, like most syndicators, mm -hmm. and we're an S corp. So that acquisition fee goes into our company corporate account, which covers all of our overhead. You know, we have well over a $3 million annual payroll right now with all of our staff. Um, we've got an office lease, you know, marketing. So we actually bought our own, we have, we have actually have a mortgage, we just bought our own office building. Um, but we have, you know, a lot of overhead. So that those acquisition fees represent 100% of the revenue and liquidity at the company level mm. to cover overhead. And then we recycle it back out into escrows as earnest money. And so we've been able to kind of, you know, truly build a lot of infrastructure here for a multifamily business. I am um, one of the questions you one of the things you mentioned that you did 34 deals, you sold already 10 of them. So your main focus on your structure is more about syndication. 
can I ask you uh, what is the upside for you uh, for a syndication over fund, especially that you've been raising money for different deals, for different assets? So why you prefer syndication over fund? Yeah, good question. We actually have both. So we have two funds. Um, we started our first fund, Rise Fund 1 in 2020, and now we have Rise Fund 2. So all the deals we bought in 2021 went into Rise Fund 1, which was 16 different properties. Rise Fund 2 is all the deals we buy in 2022, which so far has 12 properties in it. Um, and so we have both options for investors. We found a lot more success and interest with individual deal syndication. Okay, because our, our funds, like most funds, are evergreen blind pool funds, so we can always be raising. Most investors that we've talked to would rather invest in an individual deal syndication because they know exactly what they're investing in. Hmm. With these funds, you know, per and we have our SEC attorney who created these funds, but you have to basically give criteria like, hey, we're targeting, you know, X type of properties with X types of returns. But but the the investors never know the actual properties that will be in the fund. They're investing and trusting the sponsor go deploy the capital. Where, whereas with the individual deal syndication, the investor has 100% visibility into that specific investment, that business plan, the economics and the returns for that property. Hmm. Okay, so, so we've just found a lot more success doing individual deal syndication. We offer both for our investors, but hmm. I would say we've raised 90, 95% of our equity through individual deal syndication. So we launch an opportunity on in the morning and by the evening it's fully subscribed. And these are anywhere from 12 to $60 million equity raises. Okay, we just raised $60 million uh, last week uh, for a deal that we just launched. And so, so yeah, I mean, these are, you know, these are very large equity raises. We just had a lot more success doing the individual deal syndication. Percent. Um, one of the current question everyone asking about the syndicators or funds is the current market spike of the interest. Yeah, uh, we're going to this uh, recession. Um, how you underwrite your deal right now, especially with every two weeks you have a spike of the interest, right. and how you see your uh, market, especially Phoenix, uh, the core of Phoenix, uh, and the pipeline of the of the deals. Yeah, yeah, great, great question, Adam. Obviously, a very relevant topic. And so, so with the interest rates, fundamentally, nothing has changed. And, and I'm only speaking to Phoenix here because that's all we know, right? But I'm, but this applies to most of the country for the most part. But for, for Phoenix, fundamentally, nothing has changed. Meaning, the job growth, population growth, and rent growth in Phoenix has never been stronger. Even the last several weeks, as the stock market has continued to decline and tank. Our portfolio of these apartment buildings, we've got you know around 5,500 4, 4, to 5,000 units currently under management because we sold a bunch of them. They've never been performing better. We're having no issue renovating, leasing these units up above our projected rents, and, and the demand has never been stronger. So fundamentally, the performance has never been better. And the good thing is, is that these hard real estate assets really are not impacted by the stock market. That's why we like them, right? Because they're so well insulated because these people have jobs, they're going to work, they're paying their rent, their rent flows through to our investors as cash flow, right? And we're increasing the value of the asset. So, so performance wise, everything's really strong and we're very bullish on multifamily. We're very bullish on the Phoenix market going forward because we don't think that's gonna change. However, as you mentioned, Adam, with the interest rates, you know, what, what it's done is it's significantly slowed down deal flow and transaction activity because as you mentioned, it's a moving target. They, they just keep going up and there's so much volatility and we look at, you know, we look at different 
resources. And um, we've got, we have subscriptions to RealPage that we pay for, CoStar, um, which are, you know, leading multifamily analytics companies. Yep. Look at Chatham Financial, their forward-looking interest rate curve every single morning, we're referencing that. And they're projected to go up another 100, 150 basis points the next 60 to 90 days. So, you know, it, to give you an idea, Adam, of what it's done to the deal flow in Phoenix, and this is happening across the country, yeah. in March, we had 10 deals under contract to purchase. Right now, we only have one more deal. We have not won a, a new deal since March. And for us, that's very, that's very uncharacteristic of us because we've had at least two or more deals under contract at all times for at least the last 24 months because we're constantly getting deal flow from the brokers. Well, we haven't been able to make a deal pencil in our underwriting model because the interest rates are a moving target, right? And so it's hard for us to hit our target investor return when interest rates are going higher. So we're having to offer between 10 to 20% lower than where prices were just a yeah. few months ago. Yeah. And, and so a lot of investors are saying, well, wait, wait a second, does that mean that the prices are declining and that the deals are selling for less? Not necessarily. Most of the deals are not even selling. We're making offers that are much lower and sellers are not selling. They're just pulling their deals from the market and saying, I'm not going to sell for this lower price. Yep. And so what's happening is it's just basically freezing transactions. And so, you know, we predict for the next several months, if not to the end of the year, you're going to see a significant slowdown in transaction activity and deal flow simply because of the debt, hundred percent because of the debt. Yep. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, what does that mean? You know, long-term for your sales, what does that mean for your existing portfolio? So the, the good thing is, is that, you know, like I mentioned, we're having no problem renovating these units, leasing them up. The demand has never been stronger. Okay. Mm. The, the, the increased interest rates have actually pushed more people to rent our type of B-class apartments because there's even fewer people who can afford homes now. I mean, the, the residential interest rate, residential mortgage interest rate is now six to 7%. So we're increasing the value of these assets every single month. It's mm. just that, you know, traditionally, you know, we've sold 10 deals. We've been averaging over a 2X multiple in about 18 months. We've been doubling investor money by 18 months. We don't predict, we don't project that, but that's what we've been doing in reality. Okay. We project so equity multiplier is two within 18 months. Correct. We've been doubling investor on average across 10 different deals. Okay. okay. And I'm telling investors, if interest rates continue to climb like this for the next six to 12 months, and we don't know that they'll, it'll keep up at this pace that long, but if it does in a very conservative scenario, it may start to take us 24 to 30 or 24 to 36 months to hit those same returns that we were hitting in 12 to 18 months. And that's mm. because we're still increasing the value of the asset, but when your debt is more expensive, it takes you longer to get yep. to that target sales price to hit your investor returns. And so, I mean, bottom line to answer your question, Adam, is that we're very bullish. We're actively making offers. We made three offers just this week, right? Today's Thursday. Um, and so we're making offers. It's just that we're making offers where they make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, we were always going non-refundable with our earnest money day one, the past few years, the last few months, we have financing contingencies, 30 to 60 days. Our money is not non-refundable because we have to make sure we can secure the debt. So the, the market across the country in the last 12 weeks has completely switched from a seller's market. It's been a seller's market the last five plus years to now it's a buyer's market because yeah. of that. And so we think there'll be very good opportunities coming up here as buyers um, it's just a matter of you're going to have to have some sellers are going to have to lower their expectations if they want to sell. Yeah. And then we need to see some type of some, some indication of stability with inflation, because if we can get two consecutive months of inflation declining, hopefully the Fed should slow down with these drastic interest rate increases, which will then allow the lenders to be more comfortable and stop increasing their interest rate spreads. Okay. Because these lenders of ours, 
you know, these are debt fund bridge lenders. So, so our lenders, we've worked with 10 or 11 of them. They're publicly traded companies in New York City. They're REITs, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're deploying hundreds of millions and billions of dollars a year because they're publicly traded REITs. So they have investors. They have to deploy capital in order to get a yield for their mm-hmm. investors. Yeah. Right now, you're seeing this huge freeze where they're not deploying capital because um, borrowers can't make the deal work. And the lenders have to keep increasing their interest rate spreads to protect themselves against volatility. The index, which is the SOFR index, keeps going up because the Fed is increasing the rates. So your interest rate's going up on both sides. If we get some type of indication of stability with inflation, what you're going to start to see is these lenders are going to start cutting down their spreads very quickly because they want to incentivize borrowers to borrow money because they have to put the capital out. So we think fourth quarter is going to be very active. Um, we're, we're hoping inflation starts to slow down because these lenders are going to have pent up demand, kind of like in, during COVID, you know, you saw no activity and then 2021, everybody just went crazy deploying capital because they had to make up for lost time. We think you're going to see the same thing in the fourth quarter, first quarter with these lenders. And so that's kind of what we're right now. We're kind of, you know, hunkered down, making offers where it makes sense, focusing on good operations. But, um, you know, we're getting ready to really ramp up because we think there'll be some good buying opportunities. I think you're basically, to summarize what you're saying, these three scenarios is similar to lower the expectation or lenders lower their margin or yep. uh, sponsor lower their expectation about um, the passive investors' returns. So You're right, 100%. All, yeah, one, at least one of those three or all three or a combination of those is what it's going to take. You're exactly right. So, but our stand here so far is to keep our passive investor returns for a hope that in the second or third uh, quarter, uh, the other two component can lower the expectation. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of these sellers, you know, some, some sellers may end up selling because it's a matter of, are they going to get, will, will they take a 2X return instead of a 3X return? Because if they bought the deal five, six years ago for a low basis, they can still make a lot of money. But a lot of these guys, and including us, um, you know, we don't want to sell the deal at a discount just to kind of sell it early or right now. I mean, we're, hmm. we're active buyers and active sellers. So we bought 12 deals this year. We've sold five deals this year and we're buying one more, selling one more. We're not listing any more deals for sale right now because we don't want to give a discount just to sell the deal early, right? I mean, we have no problem waiting until beginning of maybe fourth quarter or even early next year if things stabilize to then list the deal for sale so that buyers have more stabilized debt. We have a lot, a lot more demand. And so, you know, I think, like I said, we're buyers and sellers. And so we're you got to be strategic on both, on both sides. So as a seller, we're pausing mm. and as a buyer, you know, we're very bullish. We're making offers, but we have to protect ourselves and make sure we're really mitigating against interest rates by, by building it. And, and I'm sorry, I forgot to answer one of your initial questions. It just reminded me, Adam, you said, how do you guys, you know, mitigate against these interest rates? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying that we have three different subjects here, inflation, a spike of the interest rate, interest rate and uh, flow, uh, like the, the deal flows. So you right. basically, we, we summarized all of them on three scenarios, how we yeah. can, Basically, yeah, and, and what we do, Adam, really quick to kind of tell you how we're mitigating against interest rates, and we've done this since day one, right? So, for the last four years, we've been doing this. We did not have to change our structure just recently because the Fed starts increasing interest rates because these are five year holds. We always assume in our model that interest rates are going to increase. So, what we do mm. is in our model, 
we automatically are building in at least 100 to 150 basis points of interest rate expansion yep. in the first two years. So if, if I get quoted out of the gates at a 4.5% interest rate, in my model, I'm automatically assuming by the end of year two that my interest rate is now 6%. And the return projections I'm showing investors are net of that. So it's already built in. And then as an ultimate backstop against interest rate expansion, we purchase an interest rate cap on every single deal, right? So that no matter what happens in the world with the Fed, the treasury, the indexes, our interest rate cannot exceed that cap. And our caps have been coming in somewhere between six to 6.75%, depending on the deal. And so in our, in our projections, we have an interest rate sensitivity analysis we show investors that says, okay, with different scenarios of interest rates, this is your projected return. And in the worst case scenario, if the interest rate goes all the way up to the cap, then this is your return. So that's what we do. We also raise significant operational reserves so that we have a lot of liquidity at the property level to absorb increasing debt service. And so we can still pay out distributions on schedule. So those are some of the things that we've been doing. So sure. basically to summarize, if the interest is going up, you can put more money, less LTV. And so you can come up with the, with the cash from your own pocket, from the investor basically uh, fund. Uh, I yeah. think before I, I, because you raised something about your market, but I want to talk about something else, uh, which is basically the lending side. Uh, your your criteria right now with the current inflation is also going with bridge loan or like interest only loan or uh, interest plus principle. So how you can, um, I'm not going to say manipulate, but make it work to keep it uh, to keep, to keep yeah. a competitive offer to the seller? Yeah, good, good question. So, I mean, the last few months, we haven't been able to find a good debt product that can actually work. That's why we haven't won any deals. I mean, right now, unfortunately, the best option still is the debt fund bridge loan with the floating interest rate. But, you know, we, we've always been low leverage for our bridge loans. We've always been 65 to 70% loan to value. We've never okay. gone over 70%. And that was before interest rates went up. That's just our philosophy because we want to cash flow in year one. We don't want to be highly leveraged. We don't want to take a lot of risk. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we've, a lot of investors are like, well, why don't you guys go get a fixed rate loan? And, and it's like, yeah, well, don't you think we've looked at that? You know I mean? We, we've looked at that the last three to four months. We've talked to every lender you can imagine, every debt broker, the problem with fixed rate financing from like a bank is that you're lucky to get 50 to 55% loan to value. You can't get a lot of leverage yeah. with the fixed rate options, right? So, yeah. I mean, right now, I think a lot of people are looking at, you know, the Freddie Mac um, fixed rate loan or the Freddie Mac floating rate. We've done several of both of those in our early, in our early years. We've done multiple of the fixed rate Freddie and the floating rate Freddie. Um, but, but again, you have the problem of leverage. You know, you can't get a lot of leverage on those. Hmm. Um, and so it, it's, it's tough right now because there's so much volatility. Hmm. And so, you know, we're making offers, but it's with finance contingencies and we're just telling sellers like, Hey, you know, we need at least 30 to 60 days lock in our debt. Otherwise we're going to just back out or, or we're going to have to reduce our price, you know, and, and that's kind of how you have to do it. So we have the similar situation now in Atlanta It's like 19.5 million deal. And, um, like we looked it at 4.5 and we didn't look it. Uh, our underwriting was 4.5 and now we have yeah. to go to 5.5. So the only, the only way is for the seller to you have to be, reduce the price, right? Yeah. You have to trade them. Yeah. It's the only way. So we were in the similar situation. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, indicator. So, uh, we're trying to do the same. So, um, my next one will be the upside of Phoenix, especially for me, Phoenix has appreciated well, um, uh, the rent grosses was great, but the appreciation also was great. 
is this for you a risk during the recession that maybe this kind of appreciation is going to be a risk on the future? And basically, what is the upside for you for Phoenix over the trend now, like Tennessee, Atlanta, Florida, Austin? Yeah, yeah good question. So, yeah, good question. So, we truly believe that Phoenix is the most insulated multifamily market in the country. And I'll give you some reasons why. I'll give you some data why. Okay. So, most people don't realize Phoenix now is the fifth most populous city in the entire country. Correct. The only cities that have more people than Phoenix are Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Houston. Phoenix is number five. It's growing faster than anywhere in the country for five consecutive years, according to U.S. Census Bureau. So pre-COVID, we were already number one. Ever since COVID, everything's accelerated significantly. Even more people are coming here. Okay. And you know, we've had the highest population increase percentage-wise in the last 10 years. And so when we're, when we're looking at Phoenix, you know, we're, we're number one for population growth. Have been, have been number one, top five for rent growth for about five years and top five for job growth. And so what's happening here in Phoenix is that the, the job growth is extremely diversified. Okay. You've got healthcare services, you've got, you've got healthcare, financial services, tech jobs, trade, transportation, utilities. It's extremely diversified. Yardi said that Phoenix had the lowest job loss rate in the entire country as a result of COVID-19, lowest job loss rate. There was an article that just came out last week, eight of the top 20 cities in the country that have fully recovered the best from COVID are in the Phoenix Metro, eight of the top 20, hmm. Phoenix number one. And when we say the Phoenix Metro, we, we, have, we have deals in five different cities in the Phoenix Metro. We have Phoenix, Scottsdale, Mesa, Glendale, Tempe. Tempe is where Arizona State University is. So we've got deals in this entire Metro. And so it, it's extremely well insulated. If you look at other markets, you look at like a, a market like Vegas, for example, which is a very strong growth market. Yeah. They got crushed during COVID. They had a lot of delinquency for their rent. They had a lot of vacancy, you know, for their rent. Um, and, and so we truly believe like in the bat and, and during, during COVID to kind of give everybody an idea, we did, we did an analysis on our end from April of 2020 to April of 2021. At the time we had about, we had about 700 units under management or so across four different cities, Phoenix, Glendale, Mesa, Scottsdale. And during that time, we saw over 10% organic rent growth doing nothing through the heart of COVID. Hmm. Then we were renovating on top of that, increasing rents even more. Our economic vacancy was 5.5%. Economic, combination of okay. physical and delinquency uh, cost of lease. Yeah. Last year in 2021, we purchased 2,800 units and we had less than 20 tenants that were able to get protection under that CDC federal eviction moratorium. And, and it's because we inherited them. We helped most of them. The ones that didn't want to cooperate, we evicted all of them, had no problems. And so the delinquency in Phoenix is extremely low. And according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, last year, Phoenix had the largest increase of personal income growth in the entire country, 8.4%. So what's, what the data is showing is that people are coming primarily from California, Washington State, New York, New Jersey, Chicago. They're coming from high tax, high cost of living environments. They're coming to Phoenix, which has all this strong job growth. They might be making the same, if not more money they were making before, but they're in a much lower cost of living environment, you know, which allows them to have this strong growth. And so kind of our long-term and our short-term um, perspective, Adam, on, on Phoenix is that long-term next 10 to 20 years, we think Phoenix will continue to be one of the most insulated, consistent growth markets in the country because of all these fundamentals. Okay. Right now, this, this current 
um, this current velocity of growth, which has been unprecedented, right? I mean, right now, trailing 12 organic rent growth right now is 21.9%. The trailing 12 organic rent growth in Phoenix has been over 20% every single month since last July, 2021. So for 12 consecutive months now, your T12 organic rent growth is over 20%, which is just crazy. And so when we started in 2018, Phoenix was number one in the country for organic rent growth at 8%. Okay, now it's, it's almost tripled now, which is crazy. So we think the current velocity of the growth has about 18 to 24 months before the velocity will have to slow. Okay, mm-hmm. because you can't just keep jacking up rents several hundred dollars forever until you hit an affordability issue, right? But even if it drops from 20% plus back down to eight to 10%, you know, like it was four years ago, it'll still be among the leaders in the country. And, and according to RealPage, Phoenix is still below the US national average cost of living and it's mm-hmm. rents in Phoenix are still below US national average cost of rents. Okay, okay. so it's, it's still an affordable market. And so for us, you know, we're buying B-class workforce housing. So this is still affordable housing for people and we focus primarily on 1980s product. That's our bread and butter, 1980s value add. Hmm. There's over 400,000 multifamily units in the Phoenix Metro right now. Okay, we own about 1% of that. 40% of the 400,000 is 1980s product. And okay. that's because in the 1980s, there was a Ronald Reagan tax incentive program, which incentivized builders to go build apartments and they just went crazy. And so there's a ton of inventory in Phoenix that has not been picked over. You know, we, we can still go in there, renovate and, and add value to it. And then, and then, and then you start talking about, start talking about looking at things like property taxes and insurance. Okay. In Phoenix, there's legislation in place or in Arizona, hmm. property taxes cannot increase by more than 5% year over year. That's the absolute max, regardless of a sale hmm. or a reinvestment. We will never buy a deal in Texas or Florida. Never. And the reason is, is because they jack up your property taxes Double just it. arbitrarily. Exactly. They'll double it. You know, Adam, it's great. They, they don't have an income tax. Yeah. They get you the property tax, right? They compensate yeah. for that. And I know a bunch of sponsors, a bunch of passive investors that call mm-hmm. me all the time complaining that their underwriting model was just blown up for these Texas deals. Yeah, because, because it was like Texas. Yeah. yeah, you can't you can't underwrite it. You just can't underwrite it, right? So in Phoenix, you know, we have 5%. We assume the max of 5% year over year. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically it's like 3%. Insurance is also very low. There's no natural disasters in Phoenix. It just gets really hot, right? That's the only that's the only bad thing. Um, and so, so we have we can really manage our expenses, you know, and, and and have that predictability. And so, because of all the fundamentals, you know, things have gone well. I mean, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, you've you've had this, you know, you've had this big run up." And a lot of people say, "Well, you know what? In 2008, 2009, you know, Phoenix was a boomer bust market. So that's probably going to happen again." Well, you know, that, we don't agree. That's not the case. And and the reason why is that if you look at 2008, 2009, yes, in Phoenix, you know, single family homes did very poorly as, as they did across the country. Yep. Um, but, but multifamily, affordable multifamily housing actually didn't do too poorly because when people lose their single family homes and they can't afford those luxury class A apartments, yeah, they trickle true. down to this type of housing, right? As you know, Adam, firsthand from what you guys do. Yeah. And, and one of the big reasons for, you know, the big, the big um, bust, so to speak, in Phoenix in the 08 recession was that the economy was heavily concentrated in construction jobs. Whenever there's a downturn or a recession, those construction jobs dry up and go elsewhere, yeah. right? You saw that during the Houston hurricane. Um, well, now it's completely different diversified economy, completely di- different diversified workforce. So we, we have a, a graphic we always put in our, our presentations from the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, which shows the categories of each work industry 
based on percentage of the workforce in Phoenix, well, there's a category of construction, mining, and logging makes up only 6% of the workforce now. There's no one category that makes up more than 20%, okay? And 20%, the highest one is trade, transportation, utilities, which is multiple industries. You've got financial services, healthcare, tech jobs. Mm, so you've got, this, you've got this very diversified economy now where you're not too you know, reliant on any one industry. And, and, and this is you know, specific to Phoenix. Like if you look at Tucson, we have no plans of going to Tucson. We don't want anything to do with Tucson. And mm. people say, well, it's only an hour and a half south. Why wouldn't you want to go there? Well, Tucson does not have a diversified economy. You know, it's yeah. heavily based on the university. And then you've got healthcare. You've got a couple hospitals. They did not do well during COVID. You know, they got, they got crushed during COVID, a lot of delinquency and mm. a lot of vacancy. In Phoenix, not only did we not see a negative impact, we saw significant growth throughout COVID. It's mm. just an enormous metro and continues to grow. And so, I mean, that, that's kind of our thoughts on Phoenix is that, I mean, obviously we're biased, right? So, so take it with a grain of salt. This is where we're at, but, but there's a reason we haven't expanded. We have so much equity demand. We could easily go to other markets, but we've intentionally stayed in Phoenix because we truly are bullish on this market long-term. Um, and, and the velocity of the growth will have to slow, right? As it will across the country, mm. but we still think it'll be sustainable long-term. I, I think my last question would be uh, based on the market of Phoenix, what was the top three objection from your investors regarding investing right now? Yeah, good question. So, so it's a great question, Adam. And so with Phoenix, you know, I mentioned, you know, in downtimes, it's going to be one of the most insulated um, conservative markets in the country. And in the good times, you're going to have this explosive growth. Well, that's no secret, right? And so because of that, Phoenix is extremely competitive. There's not a lot of private syndication groups like us in Phoenix. Hmm. Most of our competition is private equity, institutional capital, life insurance companies. And so when you want to buy in Phoenix, you're going to pay a higher price per door and you're going to pay a lower cap rate. Okay. Because you're paying for that better market. And so a lot of investors who have invested like in the Midwest or even parts of Texas, they look at the price per door and they say, Oh, you know, that, that seems like you're overpaying. They don't understand, you know, it, it's all relative. It's all relative to your fundamentals and your rents. I mean, to give everybody an idea, the median listing price of a single family home in Phoenix now $550,000 for a starter home, a three bedroom, two bath, 1500 mm. square foot house. Yeah. This is becoming like the new Los Angeles because they're all coming here. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is Phoenix is the number one destination for people leaving Los Angeles. That article just came out a couple, couple months ago. I mean, so you're going to pay a higher basis, but people have to remember everything is driven by the rents. Okay. So when you have strong population growth, strong job growth, and you don't have enough supply of housing, Phoenix has massively undersupplied of housing. There's a severe, there's a severe um, supply and demand issue in favor of landlords and investors. There's not enough housing for all the people coming here. It's been an issue for several years. Ever since COVID, it's only accelerated. They're trying to build, they cannot build fast enough. So it actually benefits us a lot um, where people can't afford homes. There's not enough housing period. So, but, but, but that's one of the big objections is just the price per door, right? The basis yep. that you're, paying. I think the second objection is the perception from 2008, 2009, people look yep. at it like the boomer bus market, right? Just yep. like Vegas was. Um, but now I, I'm telling you, it's so much different. I, I lived here my entire life. And just in the last five to eight years, it's transformed. I mean, you've got Taiwan Semiconductor, the largest producer of silicon microchips in the world. They're building a $35 billion manufacturing facility here. Intel is building a $20 billion manufacturing facility. Facebook is building an $800 million data center. Google has built two large, several hundred million dollar data centers. Microsoft has two massive data centers. 
Amazon since 2017 has built 22 distribution centers just here in the area. And so, I mean, name a big tech company, they're all coming here and they've all done, you know, their research and development for the next 10 to, to 30 years to make sure that it's worth investing. So, I mean, I mean, those are two, you asked for three. Um, I think this is a reason of jacking the price. This what's is a, that? This is basically one of the reasons of jacking up their prices. Yeah, exactly. Because these, these jobs are like high paying jobs. They're not, yeah. people are now calling this the Silicon Desert because you have all these Silicon Valley companies relocating to Phoenix because it's it's more business friendly. Um, it's, it's cheaper real estate. Hmm. I mean, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, we have this article as well. They projected Phoenix as the number five market for tech job growth through the end of 2030 in the country. Hmm. So we're top five projected tech job growth. So you've got you know, you got these high, these high paying jobs coming here. You have just this mass exodus of Californians coming here, this huge influx of people, and you still have an affordable market relative to most of the country. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of the big reasons why you're seeing the consistent growth. 100%, 100%. The last funny question, what is your superpower? Yeah, um, so good question, Adam. I mean, I think, you know, what I excel at is, um, just trying to find the people and put the team together and really the leadership. And so, you know, we, like I tell people, you know, and it sounds like a joke, but it's not a joke is that we live like my two partners and I, we live in like a constant state of chaos, anxiety, and fear. Cause we're always pushing the envelope. You know I mean? We're always doing these huge raises and every deal I'm like, is this the deal where we're going to lose our earnest money? It's always so scary, honestly. Yeah. Um, and so, but like when everybody is down and scared, I feel like I'm the guy that, kind of pushes everybody over the top and find finds a way. You know what I mean? And so I think my biggest thing is kind of bringing the team together. If there's a if there's an issue, I I will kind of scramble and find the solution and we've been able to do it, you know, time and time again. Um, and then you start to build that trust of your team and your colleagues, you know. I mean, none of this could be be possible without my partner Bikron because Bikron does, you know, really all the operations, asset management and builds out the systems and processes. Um, and so he's, he's critical for all this, but you know, I think, you know, what I've been fortunate to do is kind of just put everybody together and just always, you know, when we're down and out, just find a way to kind of prevail and, and win. So that's final question, how the people can follow your success or equity 48 success? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. So yeah, you can just go to our website, rise 48 equity.com. So R I S E 48 equity.com. You can set up a call with me on the website. If you want to learn about what we're doing, um, on my calendar. You can also send me an email, Zach, Z-A-C-H at rise48equity.com. And uh, appreciate the time, Adam, and look forward to talking to anybody who's interested. Thanks a lot for your time today. And we're happy to bring you again to talk about uh, uh, Rise 48 Equity uh, uh, success on 23 and 22. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. I'd love to be back on the show. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Thanks the time. Lot. Thank you. Yeah.